second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'll be looking at verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Let us pray once again, asking for God's help before we hear God's word read. Our God, your word is truth. Cause us to see the truthfulness of your truth here, the power of your truth, the goodness of your truth, the transformative nature of your truth, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 2 Timothy 3, 16 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you've been with us this month, you know that this month in the life of Cross Creek, we call Reformation Month. And every Reformation Month, every October, we consider some key reformational truths. Some years, we look at the five solas of the Reformation. Some years, we look at the five points of Calvinism. One year, we looked at reformed worldview and thinking, education. This year... I had to be very selective. We're looking at Reformation ologies. We're looking at five categories of theology from a Reformed perspective. And last week, we considered Reformed eschatology, which is a Reformed perspective of last things. It's a word about last things, the trajectory that God has his world, his people on. And next week, we will end almost where we began, looking at Reformed doxology. This morning, we encounter another strange word, aletheology. About 18 or 19 years ago, I came to know what this word meant. I was studying classical Greek, as seminarians tend to do, and in the vocabulary list of one of the chapters is the word aletheia. And I was immediately hooked on that word. What a beautiful Greek word that is. And I knew just then that if we ever had a daughter, we would name her Aletheia. Well, it turns out that the first child we had was a son. So we had to keep that name in our pocket since we weren't going to call Timothy Aletheia. But if you know my, my daughter, if you know my first daughter, Aletheia, you know probably what the word means. It means Truth. Aletheology is an a, word, a word about truth. It's an account of truth, which of course is a really big category, so we can't hit all the angles of aletheology. But I can assure you and my daughter that this is not a sermon about her. And there are no other illustrations than the one I just led with about her. Because to do so would be improper, it would be embarrassing and we really want to focus on truth, capital T, truth. God's people must be all about the truth because we are devoted to Christ, who is the truth. 
The main point in this sermon is Christians glorify God and enjoy Him forever as they grow into maturity on the ground of God's truth. It's a reminder of where we've been. We began this series on Reformationologies with Reformed teleology, why we exist, why everyone and everything exists. The chief end of man, the chief and highest end of man, is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. That is why we are. That is why we are here on this earth. That is why everything exists. It is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And we came, in the second sermon in the series, we came to Reformed Protology, a study of first things. And we were reminded that God is eternal God. And He, as eternal, He created. Out of the goodness of His heart, He created. He created all things Good, in the space of six days, all very good. Yet, man sinned. Mysteriously, man had sinned against God. And so there was enmity between God and man because of a sin. But God graciously provides atonement by killing animals and laying upon Adam and Eve these garments of skin. Atones for their sin. And then himself creates enmity between the woman and the serpent. And so there is enmity, but there's also a glimmer of hope. There's victory that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And so last week, we looked at Reformed eschatology, a study of last things, and we saw that trajectory of hope where God is bringing all things. Now today we come back to truth, the, the ground of our being. We are changed, we are converted because of the Word of God. We, are, we go from death to life because of the powerful Word of God. And then we go from life to more life, to greater life in Christ, to greater transformation in Christ on account of God's Word. Look again with me at verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Paul's second letter to Timothy consists of this man's final words to Timothy and his final words to us. And we can't say that Paul's earliest words are less true, that his earliest words are less accurate or less inspired than his final words are here. If it's the Word of God, it's all true. It's equally accurate, equally inspired. However, we can be mindful that God providentially here emphasizes Paul's words for us. Paul knew he was going to die. He knew this was going to be his final letter. And if you know you're going to die, and you have enough time to communicate something to someone, surely the emphasis is going to be back to the basics here. The most important things. And we see some of the most important things here in this chapter. The Word of God. Paul highlights what had to be highlighted in the Reformation and what every Christian must underscore today and always. That the ground for our being and the ground for our growing as a Christian, is the inspired Word of God. 
It is that firm foundation. Paul reminded Timothy that he, Timothy, had followed Paul's teaching. And this was good. This is what Paul says in verse 10. You have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. You have followed me. You have followed my teaching. And if it's just Paul's teaching, and you can take it or leave it, it really isn't noteworthy that Paul is saying, you followed my teaching. But if this teaching is the inspired word of God, well, then that makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? This is good. This is proper. Paul then exhorted Timothy to continue in what he had learned from mom and grandma, as they both taught him the sacred writings. These sacred writings, Paul tells us, are able to make Timothy and all of us wise for salvation. Now in verse 16, Paul equates the sacred writings with Scripture. So what is Scripture? It is holy literature. Literature set apart by God for the glory of God and for the good of man. And we're told here that all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's God-breathed. Now some translations have inspired here. All Scripture is inspired. And that's not a bad translation. But that term is often misunderstood today. The Bible is not just one book among many other inspirational sources that you know, move you to do something. That's not what Paul is getting at here. Although the Bible does move us, the Spirit with the Word motivates us, sure. But it's different from, say, well, that, that movie made me, you know, inspired me to be a better person, inspired me to be a better man. Inspire me to give more time to the homeless, to work out. That's not what Paul is saying here when he uses this word. The ESV has it right by saying it is God-breathed. God-breathed points to the origin of the Scriptures. The origin, the source, where Scripture is coming from is God. That's what Paul intends to mean. That's what he's communicating here. God breathing out his words from his very being, as it were. Paul is telling us that the Bible is unique and it is able to transform lives because its truths come from God himself. It's not only Paul's testimony. Peter testifies to this as well. In 2 Peter, he says that no prophecy of Scripture was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Yes, Paul has his own stylistic preferences. Peter has his own um, vocabulary. They, they have their own uh, way of uh, syntax and, and grammar. And the occasions in which they are writing differ one from the others. The same thing with John and, and Luke and, and all the rest. Man spoke. But these men spoke from God. They were every step of the way carried along by the Spirit, superintended by the Spirit. And so you can say that this word is not the production of a mere man. It's not coming from man, though man is the instrument. It's coming from the Holy Spirit. It's coming from God himself. And Paul tells us that he is talking about all Scripture, He doesn't say in verse 16, some scripture is breathed out by God. 
Other parts are not breathed out by God, and you'll have to determine which is which. He doesn't do that. All Scripture, whatever can be rightly called Scripture, can be said to have come from God. And remarkably, this includes even Paul's writings. And how do we know that? Because Peter says so in 2 Peter 3.16. It's very easy to remember because we have 2 Timothy 3.16 about the inspiration of Scripture, and then 2 Peter 3.16. Peter is saying that there are false teachers who are twisting Paul's writings as they do the other Scriptures. There he puts Paul's writings and the Scriptures on the same level. If Paul wrote it, you can say it's, it's all red letter. Sadly, many in the past and today will say, well, that's Paul's writing. That wasn't Jesus' writing. They come from the same. They come from God. Now, let's be clear what Paul means here. All Scripture is all 39 books of the Old Testament and all 27 books of the New Testament. All of that is scripture. All of that is inspired. This excludes everything else. The Apocrypha is not scripture. It's not inspired, even though our Roman Catholic friends would have us believe so. The Pseudepigrapha, perhaps you've heard that term, perhaps it's unfamiliar to many of us. The Pseudepigrapha is a, a larger body of literature around the same time as the Apocrypha that some uh, Christians do believe is inspired. That's not inspired. Not the Gnostic Gospels, those Gospels that were written a couple centuries after the life of Jesus to try to fill in the gaps for us about what Jesus' boyhood was really like. And you get talking crosses, and you get uh, strange things like you have to be, if you're a woman, you have to become a man to be saved. It's just wild stuff. Those are not Scripture. Those are not inspired. Not the, the TV series, The Chosen. Not the book, Jesus Calling. Not your Bernstein Bears. And I pull that out because I've heard that there was a minister years ago, not here, who gave a message to his congregation that was inspired by the Bernstein Bears. Hey, I love the Bernstein Bears just like everyone else does. It's not scripture. Not inspired. Calvin's Institutes, not inspired. As great as they are as useful as they are. And if you call yourself a Calvinist, go ahead and read those books, four books of the Institutes. Beautiful stuff, but not inspired. Herman Bovink's four volumes of Reformed Dogmatics. Wonderful stuff. And you should read them. And Crossway, I think it's Crossway, is a, a special edition, deluxe edition of the four volumes. I already have the non-deluxe version, and I want to get those, but... I'm not going to. But even so, not inspired. Not Machen's Christianity and liberalism, as great as it is, as prescient as it is, as timely as it is, as we've been seeing 100 years later. Wonderful book that you all should read. Not inspired. Not the stuff in your prayer journal. Not your own reflections on the Bible. Not your friend's wise words, as wise as they are. None of that is inspired. None of that has the authority of God. None of it has the source, as the Scriptures do. We have 66 books. That 
is the inspired word of God. That's all. But that's a lot. How many of us can say that we have mastered any one of those books? I preach 66 messages in the Gospel of Mark and consider myself still a novice in that book. In the coming weeks, we will look at the 25-verse book Philemon. And when we're done with Paul's letter to Philemon, we will still not have mastered those 25 verses, though hopefully we will have learned more. Those 66 books, it's a lot. Surely is enough time, it's enough material for us to study diligently, to devote our lives to knowing. Having John 14, 6 in mind, no doubt, St. Augustine said, Christ does not give himself the name custom, but truth. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. So, dear ones, build your life upon the foundation of God's inspired word. So I exhort you here to attend to it. Attend the teaching, but especially the preaching of the word of God, as you clearly are here. Be present for it. Don't simply be present for it, but be listening to it. One church historian reflecting on the work of the Reformation said, the only true Reformation is that which emanates from the Word of God. If there is to be true Reformation, it must come from this Word. Our Reformers attributed this true Reformation to the Word of God as it was preached especially. Martin Luther is known for having said that he did nothing while the Word did everything. He said, I was drinking a, drinking a beer or I was sleeping. I wasn't doing anything. What really was doing something was the Word of God. That is the power of God unto salvation. He knew the transformative power of the Word preached, and he knew himself to be a weak servant, simply proclaiming what God has said. We really believe that God's Word is a means of grace, don't we? And so let us attend to it regularly. Let us avail ourselves of those opportunities where God's word is being taught, where God's word is being preached. Let's go to those midweek studies if we can. Let's go to Sunday school. Let's go to ABF. ABF starts probably later than your work starts. So get up. Go to ABF. Get up, take your kids to Sunday school. Get up, take them to the prayer gathering before Sunday school starts. And pray that as you hear the word of God taught and preached that day, that it would take root in your heart. Attend worship as you are here. And sometimes we have evening worship, first, third, and fifth Sundays. Attend evening worship. It is for God's glory. It is for your good. Attend to it. Be present. Be listening to what God's word has to say. Don't just attend, but also ask. Ask yourself, what does God's word say? Is that the impulse that you have when you have any questions? Is it, I wonder what God's word says. Perhaps it's, well, I wonder what Ben Shapiro has to say. 
I wonder what Matt Walsh has to say. I wonder what Jordan Peterson has to say, what insight he has. And there's nothing wrong with watching or listening to those guys. And others, Elizabeth Stuckey, if she's got great content, and other women. Nothing wrong about wondering what they have to say about a matter. But what's your impulse? Shouldn't it be, I wonder what Jesus has to say. Do you believe that God has given you all things that pertain to life and godliness here in this word, as Peter tells us he has? If you do believe that, then you will come to it, ready to learn, ready to hear what God's word has to say about every single topic. No, it's not, gonna, it's not an instruction manual on how to fix a car, how to fix your fridge. But it gives you everything you need to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And so ask yourself, what does God's word say? Sometimes you go to a doctor and he knocks just below your knee and your, your, your legs shoot up in response. At least they're supposed to, right? Well, as, as sin knocks us down, as suffering strikes us, as questions arise, our spirit should naturally shoot up and inquire of God. What does God's word say? I want to know where, what, what my Savior, what my Lord, what my God, my Creator has said to me about this subject. Because His words never fail. His words are always true. His words are always accurate. They're always wise. You don't find a foolish word from God. It's all wisdom. Let us avail ourselves of that wisdom, always. I remember watching a couple of videos of Individuals of groups receiving copies of the Word of God. One video showed the Kimyal tribe in Indonesia receiving a New Testament translated into its own language. The whole tribe comes out, hundreds of them come out. They're dancing, they're having a party, they're anxiously awaiting the arrival of the New Testament. And when the Bibles finally come, the people break out in greater celebration and they offer a prayer of thanksgiving. Elsewhere in China, there was a group of our Christian brothers and sisters who received Bibles in their own language for the first time. A couple of Chinese start opening two suitcases full of Bibles, and then immediately, upon seeing what they are, hordes and hordes of other Christians run over to the suitcases, each grabbing a Bible for himself. They start crying, holding the Bibles to their chests. One Chinese woman says, with tears of joy streaming down her face, this is what we needed the most. This is what we needed the most. Of all things that we need, this is the most needed thing, the Word of God. How do we act when we know that one of our loved ones who is dying gives us a communication, writes us a letter, sends us a, a voicemail? What do we do with that communication? What do we do with that message? Do we read the letter and say, that's a, a nice letter, and then throw it away? No. We hold on to that communication, don't we? We keep that person's number in our contact list. We don't delete it from our phones. We hear that voice message and replay it over and over because those are the words of our dear loved one, our spouse, our child, friend, parent. We hold on to those messages, don't we? And we replay them. These are sweet words from our loved one. We don't want those words to go away. We want to hide those words. Keep them close to us. How much more so shall we approach the word of God? 
these 66 books as divine communication, as expressions of God's great love for you. He didn't have to communicate to you, but by grace he has. And these are not just words of a beloved who has died and is, is no more. These are words from Christ himself who did die and died for you that you might have life in his name. And he continues to speak to you because he is risen from the dead. And he speaks to you now through his spirit-inspired word. We listen. Will you attend to it regularly? Do we build our lives on the solid rock of truth? And so the man's house is built on the foundation of the word. But how does it happen? Paul tells us that God's word is truth. It is breathed out by God. But for what? For what profit? There is in verse 16 a fourfold profit which details the four means on which our lives are to be built. Thomas Ephraim Peck, the 19th century American Presbyterian pastor, says there are two things necessary to faith in a world like this full of unbelief. One is that we be taught what to believe, and the other that we be warned against error and be furnished with the means of refuting it, and the scriptures fulfill both these conditions. We see these two things expressed here in these four means, these, this fourfold prophet, which I already prayed in the pastoral prayer, if you caught on. The first is that God's word is, God breathed, is profitable for teaching. This refers to the content, the Holy Spirit content of the scriptures, the standard of what we are to think, of what we are to say, of what we are to believe, of what we are to do. Romans 15, 4, Paul says, whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction. Everything in the Old Testament was written for our instruction. Everything in the Old Testament was written for our being taught. God wanted to teach us many things about himself, about you, about his grace, about his plan of redemption, about how to live. The Shorter Catechism, question three, asks, what do the scriptures principally teach? What are the scriptures all about? But you notice in that question, the assumption is the scriptures teach something. They principally teach you something. And the twofold answer is what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Fundamentally, the Bible teaches us what we are to think about him, what we are to put our trust in, and how we are to live our lives. Teaching here can refer simply to God's revelation in Christ, culminating in Christ. And remember Christ's commission, the Great Commission. Go. All authority has been given to, to Christ, so go, therefore, baptize the nations, disciple the nations, and teach them not the, the highlights of Jesus' ministry, not simply, here's how you get saved, and here's how you can be, how you can, uh, be rescued from the evils of the world and your own flesh, but teach them all that I have commanded you, everything which is all the Bible, because all the Bible, as he tells those men on the road to Emmaus, all the Bible points to him. It's all about him. 
Everything, Old Testament, New Testament, it's all about Christ. When Christ saw the hungry crowd, the text says he had compassion. And what did, he have compa- what did that compassion move him to do? It does say that he then fed the thousands. But first, he taught them. Having compassion on the people, he taught them. I know students have a difficult time thinking that that's a compassionate thing for their teachers to teach them. But it is good to know the truth. It is a joy to know things, to not to live in folly, to not live in darkness, but to know who our God is. What a blessing that is to no longer be darkened by our own sin, by the enemy. Christ knew that what they truly needed was manna from above, true teaching. Because he knew that the bread, the fish, would sustain them for a day, if that. But what would sustain them forever would be the words of eternal life to be taught. One of the new covenant blessings is that people will be taught of God. So we see, as we saw in that reading in Isaiah 2, that the nations will come to the mountain of the Lord and they will ask to be taught. They'll be asked to be taught by God. And so in a world that hates truth, in a world that prizes personal truth, that prefers feelings to everything else, that even downgrades education and is making it a mockery, we must hold firm that God's word is meant to teach us. What does this then mean but that we are at times ignorant and foolish, that we need to be taught, that we don't have all the answers, and that even some of our answers, if not all of the answers, are incomplete, imprecise? What should this mean then, dear ones, that we must have teachable hearts, humble hearts, malleable hearts, hearts that are able to be shaped by the potter? We are not the potter, we're the clay. And so we are shaped by the potter. We are shaped by our God. And he shapes our spirits with his teaching. That's one of the prophets of the inspired word of God. The other second prophet is that of reproof. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for reproof. It's not a word that we typically use today. To rebuke would be perhaps a more common word. But this refers to the Holy Spirit's work, scriptural work of conviction of sin, showing us where we are wrong in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, in our motives, in our desires, in our feelings, in our values, in our reactions. These are the put-offs the Bible speaks about in Colossians 3 or in Ephesians 4. Put off these actions. Put off these attitudes. Put off these words. Put off these motives. The Holy Spirit uses the Bible to convict us and to motivate us to repent and to seek godly change. God, through his word, says, you are a sinner. You need to think differently. You need to act differently. You need to feel differently. You need to be motivated by something other than what you're motivated by. You are a sinner. And so for those of us who think that we've got it all under control, this is a blow to our pride. And for those of us who think that our traditions will suffice, whatever those traditions are, this is a knock against our well-worn ways. 
Just because we've always done it a certain way does not mean we should have begun it that way. Nor does it mean that we should keep doing it that way. The profit of reproof is only profitable for us who are reprovable, for us who are willing to be reproved, for our, us who are willing to be rebuked. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction. This refers to the Holy Spirit pointing us in the right direction by correcting our sinful attitudes, our sinful thoughts, our motives, our feelings, our actions, our speech, our behavior. The Holy Spirit uses Scripture to restore us, to improve us in our walk with Christ, to set things right. This Spirit-inspired Word shows us what to put on, not just what to put off. God doesn't leave us rebuked, but then shepherdless on how to return. He doesn't rebuke us for our gossip and leave our speech up to ourselves. He exhorts us to the truth. He doesn't tell us simply not to steal. He tells us to work hard. He tells us to put off theft, but to put on hard work such that you even have enough to give to others. Again, for those of us who think that we have it all together, these words strike against our sensibilities. But that's okay, isn't it? It ought to be okay. To say it's not okay is to say that we've fully arrived. We don't need to be taught. We don't need to be reproved. We don't need to be corrected. We're happy where we're at. We've, re- we've reached the pinnacle of knowledge. Which means your heart has probably reached the pinnacle of hubris. A proud heart. It should be okay. Because we are really just a bunch of redeemed sinners trying to be more like Christ trying to love him more purely, trying to love others more lawfully as well. And so all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This this fourth prophet refers to the Holy Spirit's scriptural work in our lives to develop new patterns of living. God uses the Bible to help us develop strength in weak areas. He uses the Bible to instill in us responsible, righteous living and discipline. Now, in lifting weights, we cannot think that we will be, as the kids say, swole by doing some heavy lifting once or twice. Otherwise, we would all be swole, wouldn't we? We'd all be very muscular, just lifting a few weights a couple times. I know I would be. It sure would be nice to have a six-pack of abs again, and at the same time, hold on to that corn dog in one hand and Laffy Taffy in the other. But this is not how God has designed our bodies to respond to food like that. Good things take time. We are made to do hard things, as the Peloton commercial tells us. God uses what we call spiritual disciplines to train us more and more to be like Christ. Disciplines like Bible reading, prayer, worship, evangelism. Serving, tithing, giving, fasting, all of these are ways that God trains us. Now, if you want to be a godly father, godly husband, godly mother, godly wife, godly anything, what do you do? Hopefully, you, you read good books about the subject. You read good books on the subject. You listen to sound sermons on the topic. You listen to podcasts that focus on that subject, whatever it is that you want to be. You learn what to do and what not to do based on your own upbringing. You listen to godly men. You ask them to mentor you. You listen to godly women 
on how to be the kind of person that Christ urges you to be, and you learn from your mistakes. And you actually be a father. You actually be a mother. You be a husband. You be a wife. You get that on-the-job training, that training that you don't get until you're on the job. There's quite a bit of stuff you can learn through, say, the, the Proverbs, through the Bible, about how to be a father, a husband, a mother, a wife, a child. And yet, God gives us experiences, real-life, on-the-job experiences to shape us. And we avail ourselves of those. We learn from our mistakes. This is not a point at which you have fully arrived but we, we grow more and more. I recently learned that one of my nephews, some of you met him a few weeks back, wants to get involved in competitive Muay Thai, which is fascinating. Uh, so a courageous man he is to get into a ring and be beaten and to take all those punches and kicks in the face. He wants to be competitive Muay Thai fighter. And what does he do? Does he just sit down and, and think great thoughts about what it is to be a Muay Thai fighter? Well, he probably does think great thoughts about what it would be to be competitive in that field. But when he and his wife were uh, staying at a place for a week, if he wasn't beating on my sons, or if they were beating on him, I'm not sure how, how it worked. It's, they were tackling him pretty much as whenever they saw him. If he wasn't doing that, he was sitting on a couch, and he pulled out his, his phone, and he was watching videos of fighters, learning moves, learning what not to do, what to do. He would go to practice three times a week. Again, he would have that on-the-job training with my sons, and would even teach them a thing or two. This is what we do when we want to get better at something. We want to be someone better. We want to grow it's not a passive thing. It is active. The Bible does say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is working in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. He puts in and we work out. Do we want to be built on the ground of the word of God? If so, then we will avail ourselves of this fourfold prophet of teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Let me ask you this. If you had to get rid of one of these four, what would you get rid of? Or if you had to focus on one of them, you, had to, you got to keep one, what would be the one you want to keep? I can tell you, for myself, I would love just to keep the, the teaching one. But just, just teach me stuff. I want to know things. I love to know things. I love to know God. I love to know myself. I know creation and on and on. Let me be taught. Imagine Many in our own denomination, Presbyterians, we love knowledge. We love to know things. Perhaps that's one that you would want to keep if you, if you had to keep one of them. Imagine the one we want to get removed from the list will probably be reproof. I don't want to be rebuked. I don't want to be told that I've done something wrong. Get that out of here. But God doesn't give us that choice, does he? He says, you need all of this. You need to be taught. You need to be reproved. You need to be corrected. You need to be trained. 
Because you and I are sinners. We are redeemed sinners. But we are not perfect. We will not be perfect this side of heaven. We will not ever get to a point and say, yes, we have made it. There's no more that we need to be taught. There's no more where we need to be reproved or corrected or trained. We have done it. We just need to help others. No, we're never going to get to that point. And so we need to ask ourselves, do we come to the word of God, open to reason, open to wisdom, open to being taught? Do we hear sermons with that same openness? Do we think, I could be wrong. Maybe the pastor's wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. I need to be a good Berean. I need to study the scriptures to see if these things are so. Do we come to the word of God open to being rebuked? Do you come to the, to the Word of God? Do you come to the preached Word of God willing to be rebuked? Every single time I come to a text, I have to come with that openness of being taught. I have an idea of what this text means. I'm not unfamiliar with any text of Scripture. But I don't know, I haven't mastered every single text of Scripture. I have to come willing to be taught, willing to be rebuked, willing to be corrected, willing to be trained by it. Do we all come with that attitude? Does pride block the artery of your heart such that Christ's blood does not purify you there? Doesn't cleanse you there? Say, no, that's an area that Christ cannot control me in. He doesn't get to say what he wants to say about that area. About how I live my life, about how I speak, about what I think, about my friendships, about how I handle conflict. Is there any area where you say, that's off limits, Jesus? Sure, in our flesh, we, we act that way all the time, don't we? Because we think our way is, is the right way. Again, we need to have this attitude of the psalmist in Psalm 141.5. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Dear ones, do we welcome the strikes of our Savior, the one who is unjustly stricken for us? Do we welcome the oil of the Spirit-anointed one who speaks to us now through his word? Do we come to God's word open to being corrected? Have we lost our way? Are we open to being brought back to the way, to the truth, to the life? Do we come to God's word open to being trained? Does the Spirit convict you of sin? Are you daily being trained in repentance? Now, the, the children had Martin Luther come and talk with them uh, in the Sunday school hour. And one of the things that Martin Luther was known for doing is nailing the 95 theses on the castle door in Wittenberg, Germany on October 31st, 1517. And you know what the first thesis, the first pronouncement is in those 95 theses. It's this. I don't have it word for word. But it's that all of life is one of repentance. It's not we repent once and we're done. Our whole lives are to be lives of Repentance. Turning away from the world, its allurements. Turn away from our flesh's desires and turning to Christ every single moment of the day. Does the Spirit use our trying afflictions for us that we might yield that peaceful fruit of righteousness? A lot of you are going through hard times. I was talking with a dear saint just before Sunday school hour this morning about her past afflictions and her present trial. It's a hard, it's a hard uh, providence. 
mysterious. We wonder why. We cry out with her, how long, O Lord? What more will you give her? How many more afflictions will you send her way? God sends these her way. God sends these afflictions our way that we might be more like Christ, that we might lean upon his word, that we might entrust ourselves to his presence and his goodness, his sovereignty, his kindness, his mercy. It's new every morning. Now, verse 17 says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So whenever we talk about means, the means are for an end, they're for a goal, they're for a destination. A vehicle on the road is not the destination. I hope not anyways. The roads on the street are not the destination. GPS says you have reached your destination once you've gotten to where you are headed. So what's not the goal? These means are not the goal. These are means to an end. They're not the end itself. Teaching itself is not the goal. Otherwise, you would just accumulate knowledge. But what does the Bible say? If you just accumulate knowledge, knowledge puffs up. You can have all the knowledge of the world, but lack love and you are nothing. Teaching itself is not the goal. Reproof itself is not the goal. Just let me be reproved, God, for the sake of being reproved. No, lest we be brought to a place of utter despair. But we are reminded that our God does not break a bruised reed. Correction itself is not the goal. Lest we return to the way only for a time. Training itself is not the goal. Lest we flex our spiritual muscles, scrawny though they may be. What is the goal? We see it here in verse 17. Why are we divinely equipped? For every good work. These good works, mind you, do not contribute to your justification. They do not in the slightest contribute to your right standing before God. Yet God does not look down the corridors of time and says, wow, look at that. That person is going to do those wonderful things for me. I will let that factor in this calculus of justification. No, every good work, as our confession says, is imperfect at best. They never factor in. There's no future justification in that, mindset, in that way. No. The work of Christ is sufficient. Praise be to him. But it says that we are equipped for every good work. So these are gifts from God himself. So that you and I would be more like his son. John Calvin, just a month before he died, in his farewell address to the ministers of Geneva, says, when I, came, when I first came to this church, I found almost nothing in it. There was preaching, and that was all. And you read a line like that, and you say, there was preaching, and that was all? Calvin, you preached like every day for your entire life as a minister, multiple times a day. What do you mean that was, there was preaching, and that was all? You know the power of the Word of God, don't you? There was preaching, and that was all. Does this contradict Luther's statement that he did nothing while the Word of God did everything? No. But it's a reminder that preaching itself is not the goal. It's not the end. Just to have the Word preached or just to preach faithfully the Word of God is not the end. It's a means. 
Calvin says, it continues, they would look out for idols, it is true, and they burned them, but there was no reformation. Everything was in disorder. What did Calvin want for himself? What did Calvin want for his members, for all of Geneva? It's the same thing that we want for ourselves. It's the same thing that we want for our families. It's the same thing that we want for this church. It's the same thing that we want for our city, for our state, for this nation, for all the nations. What is that one thing? Christlikeness. That we would be like Jesus, our Savior. That all would be like Jesus. That all would know and glorify Christ. That's why we do what we do. That's why we are being taught. That's why we are being reproved. That's why we are being corrected. That's why we are being trained. That we would know and love Jesus more and more. Because He is our only hope. He is our all in all. He is our, our sufficient God. He is our Savior. And He has given us His Word. Praise be to Christ. Let's pray. Our glorious God, we do love you. We do thank you for your word. What a means of grace this word is to our spirits. Cause us to avail ourselves of this means regularly, we pray, that we would know Jesus more and love him more. In his name we pray. Amen. I'd like to invite the elders to come on up.